Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Welcome back to the show, my dear, lovely, amazing, spectacular listeners. Uh, Checking in from a hotel in Golden, Colorado. A hotel because the van engine exploded. (laughs) No big deal. And to be fair, it didn't actually explode, but uh, around the time I posted my last episode uh, last week, it started making very strange sounds, um, and we took it to get checked out just in case it was a big problem, and it turns out it was a big problem. Um, So had to get the engine replaced, which means we are vanless for about a week, Um, but we found a great auto mechanic in Golden and kind of just parking ourselves here until it's finished tomorrow the next day. Super grateful that it can be um, repaired. It was a really stressful, sad couple of days. Um, Thankfully, I, uh, in a past life, as in my 20s, um, racked up a ridiculous amount of Marriott hotel points. Um, My dad is extremely savvy with all sorts of things in relation to credit and points and status, um, and very early on encouraged me to get my own credit card and convince any company that I worked for to charge all of the expenses to my personal card, have them pay me back, but then I would rack up all the points. Brilliant, let me tell you. Um, So I bought like $50,000 trade show booths on my personal credit card and hoped the companies would pay me back, which they did. And uh, in return, I got a crap ton of hotel points. And honestly, I, I racked up so many of them, like a million and a half or so that I thought this is ridiculous. I'm never going to use these. I don't stay at hotels. Um, but they've come in very handy over this trip, (laughs) whether it's sitting in a hotel to have, you know, reliable internet and quiet so I can uh, record some episodes. The one you're going to hear today included, uh, being rescued when we don't have a van to sleep in or just getting a break and having a shower. So, um, thank you to American express for generously allowing me to rack up uh, debt on your card and giving me copious amounts of ridiculous hotel points in return. Um, Today's episode is going to be awesome. Um, It's with Antonia Murphy. She is a pimp, a real-life pimp, lives in New Zealand. It's all legal. Um, She owns a brothel. That's what you call it. Speaking of terms, man, recording this episode, like I consider myself to be pretty open-minded and relatively educated around sex work. Um, I lived in Amsterdam. That's where I went abroad in college and talked to a lot of the sex workers there and, um, 
have studied gender and sexuality, have read about, uh, not recently, but in the past, read about sort of the history of prostitution and sex work. Sex work. Um, but talking to Antonia made me realize like how um, ignorant even I am about these things. Um, it's fascinating to think that like when something is so not conventional or in the public realm uh, and it's pushed down, below the surface that, uh, what ends up happening, you know, not to mention the shame and taboo and all of that, but just a total lack of understanding about how this works and what goes on and what these people are like in their lives and the ins and outs of having a job like this. Um, so I was really grateful to Antonia to talking, uh, for talking with me. Um, and also kind of just made me check myself. I was like, I don't even know what terms are appropriate to use in this case. Um, and whether or not I'm being offensive or so it was, it was awesome. And I'm really excited to bring the episode to you as well. Um, as I mentioned on the show, the reason I found Antonia is because she had written a, um, an article for Huffington Post that my friend Aaron, who, if you haven't listened to, uh, it was a couple episodes ago called welcome to the orientation. Um, me and Aaron recorded a podcast episode, uh, all about sex and a, um, podcast that we're going to release together uh, called Whore Rapport. Anyway, Aaron saw this article, forwarded it to me. I read it immediately, just was like, well, let me email her and see if she'd be willing to be on the podcast. And she responded basically instantaneously. <laughs> it was like, yes, no one wants to talk to me ever. So I'm really grateful that <laughs> someone does and that I can kind of share my story and what I do. Um, so that was awesome. I uh, was super grateful to have the time to chat with her and to share it with you guys. Um, I probably won't blabber on too much, um, to anyone that's listening that came to the Denver meetup last night. It's awesome to meet you. Uh, we're probably going to do another meetup maybe in Boulder sometimes th sometime this month. Our schedule is all effed up because of the van repair and it was sort of nonsensical to begin with just bouncing around, which is probably going to still happen. Everything's going to be last minute, but for anyone that uh, couldn't go last night, we'll probably do another one in Boulder at some point. Um, if you want to support the show, uh, the best thing you can do is share episodes with your friends. That's what I am most grateful for. Um, second to that, uh, leave some stars and a review on iTunes or subscribe. All of those things might seem not that important, uh, or just a means through which to boost my ego. But in fact, it helps the podcast show up for more people and in search results easily. I found this weird thing where um, if you spell millennial wrong, which is just unfortunately a very hard word to spell with two L's and two N's, um, if you type millennial in incorrectly in a podcast app, it just like doesn't show up. It doesn't register. So I'm curious if, you know, I had more stars or reviews or subscriptions, um, if it would kind of just pick up on the misspelling of the word or the rest of the words in the podcast. So anyway, regardless, um, those things help, uh, help people, um, decide to give it a listen if they don't know anything about it. Um, lastly, if you have a few bucks to spare each month, you can head over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates. Um, I uh, give out some bonuses on there, put podcast episodes, columns of inspiration, etc. Um, and that's really helpful just to keep uh, my head above water financially and help me reach more people, travel more places. Um, I think that's it. I, uh, today's episode is going to be awesome. I have a few um, in the can that are also amazing that I'm excited to share with you. So um, stay tuned. Lots of awesome content coming up and enjoy today's show. All righty. 
Um, so I'm here with Antonia, right? Is that your oh, oh, I should say it's Antonia, actually. Antonia. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I just earlier interviewed someone whose name normally is Sonia, but she pronounces it Sonia. Um, I like that. I like the unique pronunciations. Well, my mother was an English teacher, so she named me after Willa Cather's My Antonia. <laughs> awesome. I was named after a book, too. There's a Russian novel named uh, called Anya. Um, anyways. Um, so yeah, so this is really exciting for me. A friend of mine who I actually just had on the podcast, um, we talked about sexuality and what it means to us, I guess, to be a whore outside of, I think that, you know, not technically a whore, but being a very empowered sexual woman who sort of isn't afraid to, um, discuss those things. And she sent me your article and I read it and was like, have to have this woman on my podcast. Um, so that happened rather quickly. And I'm really honored that you uh, wanted to take the time to talk to me. So um, I guess, firstly, if you could kind of just describe what you do, um, I would love to hear a bit about uh, or have the listeners hear how you got started doing it as well. But if you could kind of give a general overview and then we could go from there. Well, um, about two and a half years ago, I started The Batch, uh, which I call an ethical, sometimes a feminist, escort agency here in the North Island of New Zealand. Um, I'm American. I'm from San Francisco, and I moved to New Zealand uh, about 11 years ago. But I hadn't really needed to work because I was married and raising little kids. And then when my marriage fell apart a few years ago, I... uh, began casting about for ways to make money quickly. I had been interested in the fact that New Zealand is the only country in the world with completely decriminalized sex work um, for some time. Uh, Years ago, um, I was researching a book I was writing about New Zealand, and I had gone into an escort agency in Auckland and spoken to some sex workers and and just asked questions and tried to get a feel for it. And what I came away with from that experience was that um, just – young women trying to make a living. Like it was really just that ordinary. They weren't um, exotic courtesans and they weren't downtrodden victims. They were just folks. Um, So when I was thinking about starting a business, um, I wasn't, I still wasn't sure if sex work could be done in a way that wasn't exploitative or hurtful to women, because that's really the line that we get in the media. And um, I had never been a sex worker. I had never known any sex workers. I had some friends who stripped in college, but that was about it. Um, So because I'm a great big geek, um, I started researching. And um, the first person I was able to speak to was a a young woman who um, runs a sensual massage business down in Auckland. And she agreed to speak to me. So I went down and met with her and had a coffee. And, um, she was really, really cool, real, no bullshit, just, um, down to earth young woman who had started out as a masseuse and then ended up buying the business from her bosses. And, um, she said, yeah, but all we do is sensual massage. And, uh, um, for those of your listeners who aren't in the business, sensual massage is usually an erotic naked massage with a hand job or what you might call a happy ending. She said, but the real money is in full service, which is what you call penetrative sex in the business. And I said, yeah, but can that be done in a way that doesn't harm people? Can that be done in a way that um, is, is pro woman? And she said, Oh, well, if you want to do that, you have to talk to Madam Mary. She's the only one doing that in this country. So 
I went home and got on the Google and I found that Madam Mary, uh, Mary Brennan, uh, was the f- founder of Funhouse Agency down in Wellington. And I wrote to her and I said, Hey, um, I want to start an escort agency, but it's kind of like I want to start a restaurant. And I've not only never run a restaurant, but I've also never eaten in one. So <laughs> I really like to learn how to do this well. And in about five minutes, I had an email in my inbox and she said, if you want to learn how to do this, she said, there's plenty of people who can show you how to make more money at this. But if you want to do it in a way that is going to light your passions and is going to support women, then I'm the only one who can teach you how to do that. So why don't you come down to Wellington? So I went down to Wellington for two weeks and I shadowed her at her agency and it was amazing. And I did not find any victims I found a lot of uh, young university and graduate school students and working artists who were high-fiving each other in the staff room. And the vibe was totally like when I was on the crew team in college. It was like um, just beautiful, powerful women supporting each other. And um, when they had a bad client, uh, laughing about it. And um, uh, just just a really just great supportive energy. Um and at that point, I just thought, oh, man, I'm in. This is totally what I want to do. Great supportive energy. And I should say also earning $200 an hour, you know, at the age of 21 or whatever. So these were women who were, who were putting themselves through school. They were saving to travel abroad. They were supporting their art. I mean, you know, important work. And, uh, and so I came back up to Fungare, which is the name of the town where I am, thinking, oh, that's it. I'm going to do it. And... Uh, and I did. And it's been really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so what I feel like you said something in the article that I read on Huffington Post about this, like that you'd always sort of been interested in sex work, that it just sort of was like not super prominent in your mind, but in the background. I would love to hear if you are conscious of sort of why that was like why it was always something that piqued your interest in that way. Well, I, th- I think it's a pretty common experience for young women. Um, there's a there's a there's a moment or a transition when you come into your adult body when you realize that you have a power in your sexuality. That all of a sudden um, men are looking at you in a different way. That men are approaching you, and you know whether we acknowledge it um, in so many words to ourselves or not. That we actually have a a power in ourselves to, oh gosh, it sounds so cynical to control men, but um, certainly to influence them. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember um, that sort of gradual awakening to myself and, and, and really realizing it as a young woman in, in, in New York city in, in college. And, uh, and I was aware that sex work was going on. Um, I mean, it, it was sort of a weird irony that it's completely criminalized in the States, but at least in the nineties, when I was in college, you could open up the yellow pages and there would be pages and pages of escort agencies. I don't know how they got around that. I guess they said officially that they were just companions. Um, but I was aware that there were women who could make lots of money by being, um, beautiful and charming and, uh, interesting to men. And it seemed like a better gig to me than earning eight seventy five an hour, um, at the Columbia business school doing filing, which is what I was doing, right. you know? So, um, it was fascinating and it was, it was fascinating, of course, also because it was taboo, you know, that, that I was aware that many people thought it was, uh, wrong and dirty and dangerous. And, um, I didn't think it was, 
it, nothing ever seemed wrong about it to me. Yeah. The peripheral bad stuff seemed wrong, like the idea of exploiting women or hurting women um, or getting women addicted to drugs or putting um, women uh, in a vulnerable situation where they don't, you know, they, their immigration status is at risk. But the actual transaction of trading human companionship and intimacy for money, fundamentally, I didn't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. And I imagine like so many other things that are illegal that the downsides exist in large part because it exists in the periphery in this sort of like shame, taboo, secretive, illegal space. Oh, yeah, we can go more into that if you want. But definitely the consensus among sex workers and major human rights organizations is that decriminalization 100 percent is the safest model for sex workers. As soon as you introduce a criminal element, then people go underground. And when they're underground and they're hidden, that's a situation that's ripe for exploitation. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to go into it a little bit. Um, I lived in Amsterdam for a while and it's partially what sparked, I studied gender and sexuality in Amsterdam. So I was like talking to prostitutes and it was sex workers. It was just an amazing, I had a similar experience to you. Like these are really cool people. I totally understand this. Like if I was in a different position in my life, I would do this. Um, but uh, there too, I knew that there was this like discrepancy between the legality of like selling versus buying sex. Right. And that's something that is unique in New Zealand that it's legal to do both. Is that correct? It's not only legal to do both, but really what distinguishes decriminalization is that there's no, explicit government regulation at all. So sex workers are not required to get a license. They're not required to um, show a health certificate. Um, All of those levels of bureaucracy, which may seem innocuous if you are a, um, you know, healthy, happy, middle-class white lady putting yourself through graduate school. But if you are an illegal immigrant, if you are a woman in poverty, if you are a woman who is doing this in secret to get away from an abusive relationship, those levels of bureaucracy can be formidable and maybe impossible to access. And then, boom, you're right back in criminal sex work. That's why it's dangerous. <clears throat> so under decriminalization, it's a job like any other. It's like selling pizza, like I said in the article. Yeah. And, you know, I, I talk about this a lot too, like, the unfortunate fact that just because something is legal or decriminalized doesn't eliminate the shame and taboo around it. Um, And I'm curious, like, no one can see this because they won't see the video. But when you were talking about, you know, going down to that agency at first and seeing people high five, like, there's such an uh, probably amazing amount of camaraderie, but within these groups, I mean, even when I first sat down with you, you're like, no one wants to hear what I have to say. Um, So like, what is that? been like I mean do you feel like I I think you're in a small town um but in terms of especially I guess maybe this the difference of stigma versus like being a sex worker and owning an agency like do you feel that there's a difference there is it worse or better people more confused or less confused well first of all going back to funhouse I should say that the high-fiving and the laughter happens in the staff room behind closed doors that funhouse itself is in an unmarked building behind a a frosted glass window and nobody knows what it is and those girls who are so um excited and supporting each other within funhouse if they should see each other on the street they likely wouldn't even acknowledge each other right because even in wellington the nation's capital there's a huge stigma and not just against the sex workers but also against the clients 
Um, you know, she, because it's Wellington, um, she gets politicians and prominent business people who go and visit and they don't want to be seen going into a brothel. They quickly nip into an unmarked door and everything happens, um, in hiding. Um, how is it in Fungare? Um, well, you said the difference between being a sex worker and being a madam. Um, you know, the one interesting thing I've found is that the people who support what I do um, are happy to come up to me and say, um, I think it's really cool what you're doing. And the people who um, think it's uh, sick and disgusting generally talk amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe, that, maybe that's Kiwi culture. I don't know. But I haven't had anybody give me hate to my face. Um, I think a lot of people in town know who I am. Certainly uh, the, the, a lot of the clients recognize me. Um but, you know, there's a real live and let live attitude in New Zealand, um, as long as you're not, um, you know, I mean, this is the country that passed the decriminalization law. So right. that really says something about who we are here. You know, this is the first country in the world that gave women the right to vote. So even though it may seem like sort of a quiet agricultural culture, um, there's a real like, well, you're not bothering me. I'm not going to bother you kind of attitude. Yeah. Having said that, it's much more stigmatized for the ladies. And uh, that's the number one concern when new ladies come to my agency is uh, what if I get a client I recognize? What if I get my dad's fishing buddy? Um, or my dad. That, or my dad. <laughs> that hasn't happened. Uh, but, you know, uh, peripheral acquaintances have shown up. Um, and I think one girl actually got her the dentist who cleaned her teeth in high school. And that's kind of weird. Um, but that's when I explain to them um, what we have in place, which is that uh, so when they accept a booking, they go into a room uh, they, and lock themselves in and there's tinted glass so that they can see out. But the gentleman can't see in when he comes to the door. And so they can quickly see his face and see if they recognize him. And if they do recognize him and it's happened a few times, they text the manager in charge and say, I can't see this guy. I know him. And we get rid of him straight away. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about, too, I was interested to hear this thing about how these women are um, charging for their time, not for Mm -hmm. sex. Can you talk about that distinction a bit? That's a really big misunderstanding. Um, Sex work is one of these topics where everybody has an opinion and very few people have any firsthand knowledge of it. So under New Zealand law, um, a woman, a sex worker has the right to withdraw consent at any time, even once a booking has started. And what that means on the ground is that if she is made to feel uncomfortable or threatened or disgusted, she can leave. Um, and he must let her leave. Otherwise, it's assault. So, <clears throat> you know, we get we get clients sometimes asking like, oh, can I stay until I come? Or, or um, you know, I didn't come yet. I don't want to leave. And it's like, no, you have paid for an hour of her time. An hour of her time costs $240. Um, just like when you go and see um, your chiropractor for an hour and they work on your back, they might not get out all the kinks, but <laughs> pay them the full fee for their, for their work. Um, and, and when I put, when I put that misconception to one of our ladies um, some months ago, I said, you know, people say that, um, that you're selling, uh, you're selling yourself here. Cause that's the other misconception is that we're selling women. She just burst out laughing. She said, I'm not selling myself. I'm not even selling sex. I'm selling the opportunity for sex. Hmm. I go into that room. You know, that I'm happy to offer 
sex, but that goes both ways. And the gentleman, he, the client has the responsibility to uh, not be a jerk and to respect my boundaries and to uh, make me feel safe. And as long as that happens, then we're happy to go ahead. But if he transgresses any of those boundaries, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, And definitely a misconception. I mean, I think that's even something that I wasn't super aware of, but makes a lot more sense. Um, So you have a a pretty hilarious Instagram account (laughs) 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 that I found. Um, And it was interesting because there was this like, you know, in the article that I read that you wrote, I thought it was quite touching how you sort of wrote about the different types of men that come in. And I would love to have you elaborate on that uh, a bit. And then it was interesting to look at the Instagram account, which is like the opposite side of that spectrum of the men who are not (laughs) kind and um, not respectful. Like what has this experience for you, if at all, sort of done in regard to how you view men or masculinity or patriarchy, I guess, and like seeing the different expressions? That's a, that's a huge question. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. The Instagram account, which is uh, text a madam, um, has are, are, are the bad apples. <laughs> that, those are the ones that we laugh at because they're the most outrageous texts that we get. And the most outrageous texts uh, tend to fall into three categories. Uh, can I pay for sex with drugs? Which is the worst one because those are the guys who are probably drug dealers and they're exploiting women who are addicted to drugs. Uh, can I get a discount, which is just guys trying it on? And do you offer sex with no condom? And those are the ones, you know, in general, we try to be pretty patient and teach rather than smack people down. But when we get those questions, we really, um, uh, we really lower the hammer. Um, but yeah, uh, another misconception in, uh, anti-sex work circles is that men are all predators who are, and that there's their, their natural sexual desires somehow are sick. And that sex work just feeds this sick desire for sex, 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 and that that's somehow fundamentally wrong. Um, I don't see it that way. Um, I see the desire for sex and and really intimacy, because that's another thing that people don't get, is that I would say sex is a small, that in that one hour booking, there's maybe five to 10 minutes of sex. Most of it is kindness and intimacy and just touch. That's what the men are coming there for. Um, but I see that as a, as a natural human instinct. And you would not believe how many people are lonely and starved for touch. Um, so who comes to the batch? Um, yeah, we get a few bad apples, like the ones that you see in the Instagram account. We get, uh, men who have been married for ages and sex has gone out of their marriage. We get, uh, men who are interested in, um, something, kinky and off the menu whose uh, wives after 30 years of marriage don't want to hear anything about it. Um, we get single men perhaps who have uh, unusual penises and feel really self-conscious about it, either really small or really large. We get widowers. We get elderly gentlemen who um, don't have a partner and they have no idea what to do with Tinder. Like what's an 80 year old guy supposed to do on Tinder? Instead, he can come to the batch and meet a really kind and considerate woman in her 40s. <laughs> um, we get uh, single men who are really busy with their businesses and don't have time for a girlfriend. Uh, we get all, we, And there's a fair number of guys who um, just really have this urge for novelty. You know, they, they, they want to 
meet new kinds of women and, and I, you know, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. Is it any of my business? Um, the ladies are earning money and having a good time with a man who's respectful to them. And, um, he's getting his intimate needs met. I don't have a problem with it. Um, we also have a considerable number of, uh, people with disabilities, either on the autism spectrum or extremely shy or with a speech impediment or with some kind of disfigurement. Um, and I'd say about 30% of our clients are Indian, um, and, uh, yeah, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, that whole area, there's a sizable immigrant population in New Zealand. And um, they still have some really conservative sexual rules, um, such that they're supposed to remain virgins until they have a marriage, which is usually arranged, sometimes well into their 30s. And once they do have sex, and I'm, and I'm saying this secondhand, because it's what they report to the ladies who report it back to me. Um, once they do get married, that sex is supposed to be just for procreation. It's just work a day sex for procreation that Indian, that the Indian, their Indian wives have shame sort of pummeled into them about their own sexuality. And once they, um, put out a couple of babies, that's it. You're not going to have any kind of sex for pleasure or fun or love. And, uh, so they turn to sex workers. Yeah. And I think it's probably interesting too, and probably yet another, I mean, this whole episode could probably be about misconceptions, but I thought mm -hmm. one of the most interesting, not surprising things that you mentioned were that a lot of the women that work uh, for you have a background in caregiving and that there's some, that yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. I read a book recently called The Sacred Prostitute, which talks about, um, how sexuality and spirituality used to be like very intertwined um, and that sexuality and we can't call it sex work necessarily, but what we might call that today was very well integrated into society uh, as a whole and very like holy in many ways. And um, that it was very therapeutic. And I think a lot of my uh, feeling about my own sexuality with men is that it was therapeutic as well. And I think that's something that, we've through various stages of culture and agriculture and stuff has have dismissed. Um, but I would love like it, on the behalf of the women, like what the experience is for them, because this seems like it's not just a job, like that they're going and it's fulfilling for them and meaningful and um, that they're, you know, helping these men in many ways outside of just sex. It depends. I think, you know, what people don't get is they want to put, make sex work be one thing. They want to make it be either this, either this empowering feminist project or this exploitative abuse or um, a nurturing holy spirituality. And it's none of these and it's all of these. It's yeah. uh, work. So just like um, in any job, you'll have days when you feel like you just launched it to the stars and you made the world a better place. And you'll have days where you feel like you pushed paper all day and you got nothing done. We get both of those at the batch. Yeah, um, I once did the math and about 63% of the ladies who had come through the batch were current or former nurses or caregivers. So yeah, definitely there's an element where um, women who are naturally drawn to nurturing uh, will consider this line of work. Also, they're not grossed out by different kinds of bodies. You know, um, we had a guy come in with um, uh, 
was, was it cancer of the penis or cancer of the testicles? Whatever it was, it was covered with big bumps. But the woman was a trained nurse. So she took a look at it. She was like, okay, this is fine. I know that this is not, I'm not going to uh, catch it from touching it. She inspected him. She gave an exam. And then they went ahead with the booking. So I would say um, in the same week, the same lady uh, might have an experience, uh, several experiences where she feels like she's, um, she's, she's, she's doing a kind of therapy. Um, and she might have a couple of experiences where she feels like, ugh, that was just um, kind of gross sex with somebody who was not very attractive, but whatever. I earned a couple hundred bucks and I feel pretty good about that. You know, I mean, there's, there's both. And, and we had, you know, we had one experience where a woman went up to see a guy who was quite disabled and had saved up his disability check. I wrote about this guy in my article and uh, his mother drove him to the booking and she came down and she was in tears. And I said, Oh my God, are you okay? What happened? Did he hurt you? And she said, that was the most beautiful experience. He was so, because he was very autistic. She said he was so genuine. It was like, he was like, he was from another world and he kept calling me an angel. <laughs> and so she was really, she was crying because she was so moved. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. I, 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 it's bizarre too. Cause it's like any other job, right? Like you're a waitress and sometimes you feel really great after a day of work and other times it's miserable. And yet in that context, nobody is shaming you for the fact that you didn't like enjoy your work. And yet in this context, it seems like if you don't, there's something inherently wrong with it and you're being abused exactly. or something. Exactly. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's the same question I have around the disability piece around like how we don't want to see sexuality associated with different segments of society, you know, whether that's specific gender expressions or like having to do with ableism, um, it's fascinating. I think, uh, I don't necessarily have the answers, but it's certainly obvious. Early early on when I was still getting my head around this, um, I was lying in bed and I was thinking, you know, there are, there are a few jobs in human society that deal with the most primal experience of being human. And I thought about midwifing, like the person who ushers life into the world. And I thought about, um, undertakers or mortuary workers, the people who, who clean and prepare the dead and, um, madams and sex workers, people who, um, who accept and tend to, um, sexual desire. And it's sort of like, it's sort of like sex work touches one of those very primal buttons on the human experience that, uh, just gets everybody worked up with with really fierce and 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 genuinely felt emotions even if they have no direct experience with it at all i guess we all have direct experience with how we feel about sex and so we project that onto how we feel about sex work yeah yeah i mean i definitely think it is those three categories birth death and sex that seem to sort of and i I would say maybe some aspects of money too um but these sort of things that live in the shadows that we're kind of afraid to talk about publicly Mm. um yeah so I'm thinking as you're talking too about like maybe the interesting fact that you're a woman 
have having this business and like how that might be different if you were a man that uh in many ways perhaps that that might be more challenging given the stereotypes around pimps and um like have you thought about that at all too like the unique experience of being a woman yeah 100% and it's something I haven't really been able to get my head around completely because I believe that all jobs should be open to all people but I can't really see how running an escort agency that is uh, 100% supportive of women could be done by a man. Mm. And the reason for that is that um, ladies need to be able to feel comfortable to come down to me and say, you know what? I know I have a booking, but my period just started and I'm getting some really bad cramps and I don't feel up to it. Or that guy's penis was way too big and um, I feel raw now. So please write, do not take booking on him. Um, and it's not just that, that, that a woman might not feel comfortable saying that to a male manager, but that because I'm a business owner, by the very nature of where I am in my life, I tend to be older than most of the girls. So it's, um, would a girl who is 20 years old feel comfortable talking to a 45 year old man about the specifics of what's going on in her body and how she felt in that booking? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. And, and one thing I've really had to confront head on in this is that, you know, it's all well and good to say you're 100% consent based and all the ladies always consent to everything all the time. But what I've learned is consent is very complex. And, um, sometimes a 20 year old girl, um, I might say, would you like to see this guy? And, I've had um, a couple of situations where the girls said, yeah, yeah, I'll go see him. And then I, I found out later that they didn't really want to. Um, they weren't hundred percent comfortable in the booking and they didn't feel comfortable um, advocating for themselves and saying no um, either to me or to um, the client. And that's something that we've had to work through together. And I've, I've had to explain to the ladies, look, I pledge to always protect your right to say no, but you must pledge to me that you will advocate for yourself and say no, mm -hmm. if it's no. And so, and we've also developed a phrase, um, uh, hard no, so that, um, if a woman is really feeling uncomfortable, but she doesn't feel like she's able to express that she just uses the phrase hard no, and it will never come up again. Nobody will ask her. And so these are the kinds of things that we've had to navigate together as, as women at the agency. And I feel like, um, if, if I was a man, that would be much more difficult, if not impossible, not to mention just the look of it, um, to right. people in society, um, because of the historical power dynamic between men and women would look that much more, um, problematic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know, maybe, maybe a very gay man would be able to do it because, um, they can sort of, um, Gay men can sometimes slot into the space of of girlfriend or peer to women, but I think it would be hard for this job to be held by a straight man. Yeah. And I'm not super familiar about like the history of sex work in general, but I like even the term madam, right? Like what wasn't didn't a woman always often hold sort of a prominent role in that type of arrangement, at least hopefully in a sense that the business was running appropriately and in some sort of respectful way that there was always that sort of place for a woman that she was the one interacting with, uh, 
I haven't studied the history of it all the way back. I know yeah. I've read um, I read a biography of a, of a of a madam in New Orleans in the early part of the 20th century. Her name escapes mm-hmm. me now. Um, uh, and it was it made a lot of sense because she, uh, she was she was a, she was a woman with very little education who needed to make money in a time when there were few opportunities for women. And she was able to become quite a prominent businesswoman in New Orleans um, by doing this work. Um, so it, it makes sense that it would be a job that women could slot into in a time when there were fewer options, uh, employment options for women. Um, I know that like people will ask me sometimes, Oh, do you offer services? And I always say, not only do I not, but it's very important that I do not. Um, now that I do this job, I see, um, that the fact that I am, um, in my forties, I have this big, scary American voice and I don't put out makes me the, um, the sexless gatekeeper, um, to the ladies who work at the batch and men know that if they want to come and, um, see an escort at the batch, they have to get past me first. So it's almost like a, it's like a, a, a mom almost role that I have of, um, if you want to see one of the ladies here, you need to show me mom, the madam that you're going to mind your manners, buddy. And, um, the fact that I'm completely sexless in that exchange is very important. Yeah. Do you feel like an immense as the mom, like an immense responsibility and sort of fear about that power that you hold, that you're sort of this gatekeeper for the men that come in and the women's experiences or, I definitely feel a responsibility. Like yeah. Madam Mary told me when I was training, she said, you know, if you're running a restaurant and a dish goes out and it's not cooked right, like the worst thing that can happen is the dish will come back. But if you screw up in this job, somebody could get raped or assaulted. Yeah. And I took that, I take that on board hard. Yeah. Um, so yes, I definitely feel a responsibility. I don't feel fear any, I felt more fear at the beginning. Now we have a lot of, um, policies and strategies in place. And I and the other managers who I work with, we have a really good sense of what the red flags are with clients. And so I feel quite confident in, in what I do and, and how we, um, how we uh, work with the clients and uh, are able to pick out the warning signs before they become a problem. But yeah, it's definitely, it's nothing, it's nothing to sneak at. Yeah. <laughs> And you said it was like, this has been one of the hardest things that you've done. Um, have we talked about all of the reasons why that is? Or are there other things that like you just did not expect? That so you- much. Yeah. Uh, well, the first was just finding a place to rent. Nobody would mm-hmm. rent to me. I went around. At the time, I was saying, I want to start an ethical brothel. And real estate agents would look at me like, what are you even on about? Like, they just assumed that I would bring in drugs and crime and gang activity, because that's a stereotype, right? So no one would rent to me. And uh, and then eventually, the, one of the agents that I was working with said, look, I own a motel as an investment, but I really don't want to be running this motel. Um, so if you will take over the motel, you can um, use, you can also run your escort agency there. And um, I didn't want to be running a motel either, but it seemed like the best option at the time. Uh, so that's what I went ahead and did. So that was the first one. So then I had this budget motel on my hands that I had no interest in running with a huge overhead to keep it going. So I had to learn how to run an escort agency and a motel at the same time. Um, then in order, so then, okay, so I have uh, an agency, but I have nobody working for me. I have n- no clients and I have no escorts. 
So to get the word out, um, I happened to have an old call, a friend from high school who worked in media down in Auckland. And she was like, let's get a story in the New Zealand Herald. So she, we worked that. We got a reporter up. We got a big story in the New Zealand Herald and boom, now the community hates me. And there's all these calls coming into council and people trying to shut me down because I don't have the right permits. So then trying to navigate that whole bureaucratic um, nightmare with, with, you know, officials coming down and saying, well, I don't, I don't think you actually have enough parking places to be able to operate a center. And it wasn't about parking places. It was about trying to shut down the bad, sinful escort agency. So we got through that. And, um, I don't know. I think really it's just been a process of just being a pit bull and not letting go. I just, I, I, and I, and I, I couldn't let go because my family and my kids were on the line. So, um, didn't have any ladies and just kept working at it, working at it, working at it. Tried to promote through Facebook, got kicked off of Facebook, uh, tried to promote through Tinder, got kicked off of Tinder a couple of times, just kept working at it. Um, got some ladies through because of the piece in the New Zealand Herald and then slowly, 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 slowly it built on itself. And it, and much of it was, you know, we're getting back out around the community that, oh, this actually is a, a, a woman positive space. It is a safe space. She actually does care about our, about our safety. Um, um, and hey, look, I'm on track to be making $100,000 this year. Then we would get more ladies coming in as the word got out. But um, God, it's been tough. <laughs> And then, and then it's, it's true that you look, I, I don't want to be glib about it. It's not just women who are happy and healthy and doing this for the sexual adventure. Like we also have had women coming to us who are um, trying to leave drug addictions or trying to leave abusive relationships. And guess what? Those problems don't go away overnight. Once you start making $120 an hour, like the, the, the dramas would keep rolling in and we would have to navigate them. And, um, uh, there's a huge methamphetamine problem here in the north of New Zealand. Navigating that when it, when when there's a woman who has a drug problem that's starting or a client who comes in on drugs. I mean, I could go on and on, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> right now, it is as drama-free as it has ever been. And that is because we, we got enough of a reputation that we were able to attract enough ladies that we were able to um, only accept ladies who are 100% drug and drama free. We're able to, we used to go and stay in business until one and two in the morning. We do not now. We hard close at 10 PM. So we don't get any drunks and partiers late at night. And all of that has drastically reduced the amount of drama. And we know what we're doing much more. Yeah. So imagine like, uh, there's like an interview process and a training process for these women. Like there would be at any other job. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, there isn't a training process because how would that work? Like, yeah. Or just like the policies of how you're, yeah. Or like, I, I mean, I was thinking about it when you were talking about having conversations about their own sort of empowerment and speaking up for themselves, that there are like certain important uh, pillars that need to be discussed when they enter into this type of work. Yeah. Well, I, um, I have a first step is I have a conversation with them about, um, you know, who they are and why they're doing this. And, and I, I get a feel for if they are, um, um, you know, reasonably emotionally healthy and stable and not on drugs and not desperate. Um, 
And once I'm happy with that, I, 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 the next step is we generally say, uh, oh, I have a manual that I've written that tells them some basics about um, remaining discreet, about how to handle awkward questions, like if a guy asks for, quote, unquote, natural services, which means without a condom, um, sexual health and safety, um, how to plan out the timing of a booking. Like a lot of these young ladies, especially the younger ones, they're like, Oh, I have to spend an hour with this old guy. What are we even going to do that whole time? And so I sort of explained to them, you know, you sit down, um, there's complimentary beverages in the room. So you can offer him a drink, um, so that you can have a chat and get to know each other. You need to get him into the shower. At least you can also shower with him on and on and on. So then they see that actually there's going to be a, a very small portion of that time that's going to be spent actually having sex. And, and then, you know, at that point, another misconception is that the ladies who come in and do this are these sort of um, uh, vestal virgins who have never been with a man before. But actually, these most of these girls are already having a sex life on Tinder. They're, they've already had the experience of meeting up with a guy who they don't know at all or barely know for a hookup. So they know what to do, <laughs> you know? Um it's it's um, getting everybody comfortable, having a shag, and uh, giving him a slap on the ass, and, and getting him out the door. Um, <laughs> I don't. So I give them the manual, but I don't give them a whole lot of like, you must do this and you must do that. I just give them the basics of how to stay safe, and then I tell them, you know, look, it's it's basically like a Tinder date. Um, and remember, he's just a boy. Yeah. And that always uh, makes them feel much more comfortable because they realize, oh, yeah, I've done this. I've been doing this for years. It's just it's just a date. So then I make sure that the first experience that they have, the first date is with a well-known client to us, somebody who I know is rock solid, 100 um, percent, zero risk, just a nice, gentle, charming guy. And, and let them have one or two experiences and just see how it goes. You know, no pressure. See if you like it. Nine times out of 10, even more, they are really nervous when they come in and then they come down from that first booking with a huge grin on their face. And they say, Oh my God, that was so easy. That was the easiest money I've ever made in my life. When can I, when can I see another guy? <laughs> Very occasionally they're like, you know what? This isn't for me. That felt weird. I'm like, cool. Off you go on your way. And, uh, and then really the training process isn't, isn't so much a formal training because remember I'm not in the room and that would be weird anyway. Um, it's more like, especially with newer ladies and especially with younger ladies is talking is debriefing after each, um, each booking. And, and, you know, if there's anything that made them feel uncomfortable or something that was a bit awkward talking about it and, and, and exchanging ideas of how, how it could be done differently the next time. And also critically, not just from me, from the other ladies. So, I have a space and, and, and it's another thing that Madam Mary taught me the, the space where we work that we call the dungeon. You know, it's a comfortable living room type space where you can make coffee and tea and there's a microwave. You can make yourself a meal and the girls, they hang out and talk and debrief. And they're like, you know, uh, things like, uh, oh my God, the, the condom fell off when he was pulling out. Oh, well, did you remember you need to hold it? Make sure he holds it by the base or, um, um, it, Ew, you know, he was so overweight. Oh, well, honey, you know, just turn around and do it doggy style. Then you can think about Keanu Reeves <laughs> just and, and have a laugh and just sort of take down, take it down a notch and exchange ideas. And that, that is really the process of learning. Yeah. 
And like, it sounds to me too, like in the, uh, the times when the women do enjoy it and it does work out that there's, there has to be again, misconception, something that's super empowering in a space that I feel like conventionally is seen as disempowering. Yeah. Um, I mean, you wouldn't believe how many women, um, their confidence just takes off in the hmm. first weeks because they've been especially the ones who are single mothers and who've been bogged down in diapers and chores for years all of a sudden not only are they making all this money but they get into a room and men are telling them you are incredible you are gorgeous you are the most beautiful thing i have ever seen and their confidence just goes through the roof yeah that's amazing does it also sometimes like do you think change their relationship to or view of men being at least in the good experiences with men in this context? They say, they tell me that they learn a lot about men, that there are Mm -hmm. so many different kinds of bodies and so many different kinds of things that people like 100%. Um, But in general, have we been surprised about men? No, you know, the thing is um, men are not a different species. They're just, people like us you know it's nothing to be scared of yeah yeah so how do you how do you view or define feminism personally because I definitely struggle with the term parts of the movement in general because I feel like often they're um coming from a place of like victimhood or disempowerment um so I'd be curious, like within this space, I know you call your agency sometimes a feminist <laughs> agency. So I'd love to just like hear what your opinion is or definition of feminism to you. Yeah, I heard you talking about about that. And I was really interested in your perspective and how at first, um, uh, at, at first I, I, I wondered why you didn't want to call yourself a feminist. And when you, I heard you talking about how you felt that, um, there was a sort of an, an exclusionary attitude, like you had to toe a certain line or you were not in the club right. that resonated with me. Um, because I don't think I really thought of myself as a feminist until I did this work. My mother was a classic 1970s feminist. And I think um, I grew when, when I was growing up under her roof that began to grate on me like this, this constant, um, this constant, uh, almost like a war cry of you have to get a profession and don't get pregnant because then you won't go to graduate school and you need that profession so that when you get pregnant, you can get back in the workforce because you don't ever want to have another man, a man in control of your money. It just felt so angry um, that I rejected it uh, growing up. But I grew up, you know, in a very privileged circumstance where I was surrounded by, uh, you know, educated people who didn't um, try to hold women down. And it wasn't until I got into this space of sex work where I see that this work is something that women can do and earn many times what they could in any other industry unless they have a graduate school level of education and 10 years down the track. Um, this is in very many cases, their best chance for earning quite a bit of money and achieving independence. And I see not only that people are, um, trying to take away their opportunity for doing that safely, but actually won't even listen 
to the voices of women who are doing it, who say, hey, hello, I'm not a victim. <laughs> I, I, I have a right to do what I want with my body. Yeah. That I started thinking of myself as a feminist because to, to, to me, to me, the, <clears throat> the right and wrong there is very, very clear that we, we have, we, sh- we should have as human beings bodily autonomy. And, um, to me, um, regulating or criminalizing sex work is in the same basket as regulating and criminalizing our reproductive rights or our right to vote or our right to work. It's all part of the same. Um, ancient attempt to control women. Yeah. Well, I think that's a mighty powerful note to end this on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's like a mic drop moment for sure. Um, But before that, I ask everyone at the end of my interviews if they could uh, recommend a book or two to the listeners that either has something to do with this conversation or not something that was really meaningful for you. Um, What might that be? Yeah, I do. I, 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 there's one that I was just listening to that was incredible. How do I, if I can get that exit full screen, I want to get back to um, <clears throat> my browser so I can give you the authors. Um, the one I just listened to that knocked me out was uh, The Snakes by Sadie Jones. It just came out. Um, it's an, it, she's a British writer, I believe. And it's a, it's a fiction, it's a thriller, but every scene in that book is an exploration of power dynamics. It's mm-hmm. incredible. It's oh. often so subtle. And so much of what I do in, in my job is also, uh, a power dynamic of, is of very subtly ascertaining what the client is after and making sure that he understands that we are in charge and that he needs to play by our rules. And so that was really interesting to me. The other one is the pill. Have you read that one? No, I haven't. That is incredible. Um, it's part of what we were just talking about. Um, the pill book who wrote it. Uh, I don't think this is it. But it's it's basically it's the history of the birth control pill. Oh, okay. History book. Maybe it's the history of the pill. Either way, if you can't find it, I'm sure I can Google it. It is the birth of the pill. Oh, cool. Okay. And it's Jonathan Egg, E I G. Cool. And what's incredible about that is that the history of the pill is the history of women gaining uh, control of their lives. Yeah. Um, because I didn't, and I, I think I realized this in theory, but not really fully until I read this story before we had control of our own reproduction, uh, women's lives were a series of pregnancies. We were enslaved to, um, the next pregnancy and what a horrible thought, what a horrible thought of, Oh my God, I'm pregnant again. I'm not going to be able to feed this child. This next childbirth may kill me and I have no choice in the matter. Yeah. And so, and re, so it's a, it's a history, it's a history of the, of a pharmaceutical book, but it actually, it reads like a page turning thriller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always sort of see the very much of the like abortion debate as a debate around women's like non-productive, non-reproductive sexuality. Mm-hmm. That like, that's what it's more about than anything is to like return back to that place we, where we are enslaved by babies. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Um, okay. And lastly, if people want to learn more about you, your agency, what you do, um, where could they find you or learn more about that? Sure. Uh, well, the agency's website is batchgirls.com, B-A-C-H girls.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at text a madam and yeah, those are, and I, uh, no, hang on. <laughs> I'm on Instagram at text a madam and I'm on Twitter as batch girls. So, um, yep. I'm on all the socials. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, thank you so much again for taking the time. This was really fun and informative. Oh, it was really fun. Anya, thank you for having me on. Hello again. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, today I am going to play you out with a song um, called Love for Sale. Obviously, it's super appropriate. <laughs> um, it's a Cole Porter song. It's been covered and sung by ridiculous amounts of people in a million different styles. The one I'm going to play today is um, by Eartha Kitt. It's sexy as fuck. Um, and uh, sort of immediately knew that this was the song I wanted to play for this episode. Um, for those of you that care, there is a Spotify playlist called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World um, with all of the songs that I play on the show. So feel free to subscribe to that. I'm also trying to, this was a suggestion from a listener um, who suggested this quite a while ago <laughs> that I still haven't done, but I, I intend to, is figure out some way to come up with a um, a link to like the list of all of the books that everyone's recommended, um, because I uh, think that would be cool to have those all in one place. It's kind of one of my favorite parts of the show is to ask for everyone's book recommendations, and it would be cool to bring all of you guys um, a list of those, or maybe put it on Patreon, not sure. Um, so that's it. If you want to support the show, um, again, share it with people, uh, subscribe, leave stars, review, head on over to Patreon, yada, yada, yada. That's it. Love you guys. Talk to you next week. Fresh and still unspoiled Love that's fresh and slightly soiled Love for sale Sail. Let the poet's pile of love 
in their childish way. I know every type of love better far than they. If you want the thrill of love, I've been through the mill. If you want to buy my wares, follow me and climb the stairs. For sale, love.